It's great to see such a full house, and I know why you're here. <laughs> We're talking about sex. You know, when I was getting ready this morning, um, ironing my clothes, I was so nerved up, I dropped the iron, busted it all over the floor. And you might be thinking, Scott, iron his clothes? Yes, my wife, we are equal partners in the marriage. It's all good. She didn't know I broke the iron, but we're going shopping after church. Um, I had someone else walk through the door this morning to this service, and they grabbed my hand, and they said, good luck. And I get what they mean. It's a little unnerving. We come from many different backgrounds. Um, we talk about different subjects. Our What About series, we've talked about what about evil, what about suffering, and today it's what about sex. And as, as I said, we come from different backgrounds regarding our, our view on sex and how we were raised and uh, what may or may not have happened to us at some point in our life that has changed our view in sex in our almost anything goes culture. Um, Adults are swayed, children are being swayed, truth is being exchanged for a lie. And I just want you to know that um, your view of sex or morality could be very different than the person in front of you or behind you, next to you, around you, uh, just based on all the factors that uh, we, we mentioned. And I just want you to know that even in churches, things change that some churches have different views based on loose interpretations of the Scripture, but I want you to know we want to use God's standard, and I want to make it very clear this morning that we use the Bible alone as the authority that communicates that standard, because we believe the Bible is the authoritative Word of God, and even if that's not where you stand right now, that's where we are, and here's what I'm asking you, don't leave. <laughs> Just don't leave. You might be tempted to leave at certain points. There might be pieces of Scripture that we share that you don't want me to read but we're going to read them, and we're taking them from God and from His Word, and I just want you to have that up front, and you can draw your own conclusions, but give yourself uh, the permission to sit through and listen through and allow the Holy Spirit, perhaps, to work through the Word of God the way He intends, because when the Word of God goes out, there's power in that, and there's oftentimes conviction in that, and when there's conviction it oftentimes creates a desire to change the way that we live and alter some things, and that results in honoring God, and it will also result in more freedom within you than you have ever thought possible, because it's all for our best, and it's all because God is a father who sees us as his children and wants nothing but his best for us, period. So keep all that in mind as we move forward. Um, when Paul was addressing the Christians at Rome as those who were no longer under the law, um, subject to all of its rules and regulations, but rather they're under grace, no longer needing to offer animal sacrifices where the blood of animals would atone for sin, as in the garden when Adam and Eve committed the first sin, and then God shed uh, the blood of an animal to take the skins and cover their all of the sudden nakedness, their exposed nakedness, and from that point on, and coming into the Old Testament, there were animals and the blood of animals that would be used to atone for sin and, and sacrifice, and then God finally brings an end to it by offering His Son, Jesus, once and for all, 
that we can have the sacrifice made for our sin to cover our shame and to forgive us and to be cleansed and washed and saved by the grace of Jesus. My question is then, does that give us full permission to live as we please? Does it mean we disregard the things that God calls sin or, or disregard the standards that God had set? Uh, on the contrary, and what do we do with ourselves? And I want to present this first before we talk about the subject of sex itself. Romans 12, 1, Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And this verse is perhaps the most all-inclusive verse that I'm aware of with regard to how sacred our bodies really are and, and how sacred ourselves really are and that everything we do with our body is part of our worship, not just in the context of sex, but every single thing we do and how we treat our body, how we dress, how we act, what comes into our body and what goes out is all a reflection on who or what we worship. For those who are followers of Jesus in the room, would you agree with that? Every single thing that we do with our bodies is a reflection of who or what we worship. And it's our response to Jesus' sacrifice to offer ourselves as living sacrifices inside and out daily. And Paul said earlier in the book of Romans, before he even stated this, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your, in, your bo- in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. And he said this even before he talked about offering our bodies, presenting ourselves as living sacrifices. But it helps to clarify that every part of our body makes up the whole instrument that is to be used totally to worship God. I just want to put that out there as the standard by and through which All actions and thoughts should be measured, including sexuality. If there's a chance that someone can kick the lights up just a little bit more, or maybe these lights down just a little bit, uh, that would be helpful. I want to see you guys during this subject. Man, uh, this is really important. Sort of strange for many to think of, because some want to separate sex from God like some want to separate church from state. And sex shouldn't be separated from God. It is not dirty. It is not something that God did not design that is actually included as part of our worship. And you think, oh, I just can't stand the thought of that, thinking that, that. you know what? Every single thing we do is an expression and part of our worship to God. He ordained it. He designed it. And how could he come up with something, well, so amazing, huh? We think, how could God do that? Well, he did. 
or that it may have symbolic meaning that could help us understand the depth of his love for us and the intimacy that he longs to have with each one of us as his sons and daughters, not, of course, in a sexual way, but sexuality is the deepest level of intimacy that is to be experienced between two people. And it is the belonging to one another in the deepest of ways that sexuality brings. And I'll talk about that more in detail, but think about how much God longs, and could this be a foreshadow of the type of relationship that he longs to have with us regarding the closeness, or what we'll refer to later as oneness. And so, he desires that we honor him, and that we have relationships without shame, relationships without guilt, relationships that honor him. So here we go, let's talk about sex. Let's talk about it. The first thing I want to talk about is sex without shame. When God created the world and the first man to tend the work of the garden, he said it's not good for the man to be alone. And I know we've read this passage many times in the last uh, year or so, but we're going to read it again. I want you to see it for what it is. Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God said it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what the man would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And, the, and then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man, and the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were naked, and they felt no shame. So Adam was looking over the animal kingdom. There's no suitable mate for him. God recognizes that. He uh, brings to Adam uh, Eve from within. It's, he, he calls it the most suitable helper. Uh, it is a woman, and Adam says, perfect, absolutely perfect. And that's when the two became one flesh, sex without shame. It wasn't dirty, and it wasn't hidden. It was sex before sin entered the world. And we know sin would enter the world not, not too long after, but it wasn't a sexual sin that entered the world, was it? No, it was just two people who did what God asked them not to do. And so there was even sex without shame in that context. They could still have sex even though sin had happened, and it wasn't shameful sex because they weren't going outside the boundaries. Um, sex between a married man and a married woman is what God has set forth so far, and, and sex outside of that dishonors God. Sex is supposed to be without shame. It's, it's not supposed to feel dirty or make you feel shame. So if you're feeling shame when you're having sex, you may not be honoring God with the relationship that you're in, or possibly someone has done something unto you in your life to make you feel shameful or abused, 
and it wasn't something you brought upon yourself, but you still feel some shame and you feel maybe dirty or that sex is dirty. And here's what I, I, I pray for you this morning. I pray that at some point very soon you're released from that and that God gives you the freedom and that you can get even some help if that's what's required so that you can experience um, the intimacy the way God designed it for you. Even if someone ruined it for you, we know Jesus can restore it and he can help you and he'll do that. So sex is to be without shame, contained and protected in the confines of a marriage between a man and a woman. That's what we have so far. And I know it's early, but sex without shame does not include adultery and it does not include living together, homosexuality, pornography, polygamy, or fornication. That's, that's not what we're talking about. All of that would be considered immorality. Sex without shame is supposed to happen as God planned it. It's a gift and it's part of your... Worship, oh, it just doesn't rain well with us, does it? Because we were, we were taught inappropriately, but our sexuality is part of our worship because anything we do with our body either honors God or dishonors God. It's very spiritual in nature and very intimate, and there could never be uh, anything else. That's why it's reserved for a husband and wife in marriage, because it's, if it's shared outside of marriage or before marriage, you'll no longer have the depth of intimate expression that is reserved for the love of your life and also uh, in the way that God honors it. And please hear me, I know that when, when sin is committed outside of that relationship, there is forgiveness, there can be mercy, there can be restoration. I'm not discounting that. Many of, of us in this room have experienced sin outside of the marriage relationship and we've come to God for restoration and even our spouses have extended mercy and grace and restoration. But I think you get the point. Sex is supposed to be a fully committed marriage relationship. That's what it's supposed to be. It's the one that honors God. It's the one that brings the most freedom. And when Paul was addressing the Corinthian Christians who lived in the most sexually immoral city on the earth in that day, and everything was about sex, there were even temple prostitutes where you would go to temple and you could pay a prostitute, have sex with her or him, and part of the money would go into the temple treasury. Now, is that messed up or what? And Paul himself chose not to marry, to remain celibate. I say good for Paul, right? I mean, that's awesome for Paul. But for the rest of us, most of us, not so, not so easy. And we live in a similar society, I think, that the Corinthians lived in. And so here's what Paul wrote. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to marry. But since there is so much immorality, by the way, Paul dedicated himself in celibacy to honoring and serving God. I just want to make that really clear, what he chose to do. So he said in verse 2, but since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each, each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And here's where the husband often says, see, I told you it was in there. 
And I've always said to Beth, hey, my prayer life is suffering, you know. So, no, anyway, we, sometimes, sometimes this, this comes across as merely obligational. And everybody knows what happens when, well, well you know, it's obligational. And if, I, if we didn't have the other piece, that sex without shame is also intended for pleasure, and there's a lot of romance as part of a solid marriage, and if I told you there's a whole book dedicated to romance and sex without shame, which book would you say it is? I assure you it's not numbers. What book? I hear you. You know it. Some of you know it very well. It's Song of Solomon. And if you've never read that book, it is steamy and sensual. And when you do read it, you'll see how romance and intimacy are all part of God's design for sex without shame. You no longer have this view that sex is somehow separate from God and that God had nothing to do with it. He had everything to do with it. He was the one who orchestrated it and planned it so that we could have the kind of intimacy with the one that he has led us to um, and, and in the way that he designed it. It was part of his plan all along. And so in saying that there's sex without shame, we also have to talk about sex that brings shame, sex that brings dishonor. This is where it gets really uncomfortable in some ways and a little hard to hear, especially given our culture, so just hang in there. If you find yourself in the middle of sex without, uh, with, with, with dishonor, sex that does bring shame, I, I think you'll want to make some changes to honor God and to free yourselves. And perhaps you'll draw some lines, make some changes that aren't motivated by guilt uh, alone or shame alone, but because you want to worship God and because you want to use your whole life in every way to do that. So sex in any other way than God intended, which is sex without shame, sex in any other way is sin. It's actually idolatry, and idolatry is definitely all about worship, but it's worship about self and honor that is supposed to be due our Heavenly Father. We're giving to ourselves. We're honoring ourselves. So we, we aren't going to leave on this point. We'll, we'll close with getting on the path that honors God, and we'll, we'll also do our best to even give suggestions on how to do that. And so in a book written by Mark Driscoll, he talks about our current culture where sex is a small G God. I just want you to get these statistics for a moment. Here's what happens when you have a culture where sex is God, like ours. Annual pornography revenues are more than $90 billion worldwide. In the U.S., pornography revenues were $13 billion, and this is an old statistic, several years old now. That is more than all the combined revenues of pro baseball, pro basketball, and football combined. More than the combined revenues of ABC, NBC, and CBS are the revenues of pornography. Porn sites account for 12% of all internet sites. Every day, 2.5 million pornographic emails are sent. 90% of children ages 8 to 16 have viewed porn on the internet. The average age of first porn observation is 11. That's the average age. 
The number one consumer of online pornography is 12 to 17-year-old boys. You really conservative Christian parents, he says, who have a sixth grader and you wonder, when should I talk to them? Two years ago. That's when we need to talk to them. And we need to do more of that at our church, within our church. We need to find ways to help people through this. It is, a, it is an addiction. It's a struggle. It's a mess. It'll wreck your life. It'll wreck your kid's life. It'll wreck your family. We've counseled so many people in this group, and we need so much help. And you need help, and, and I need help. We've got to make this thing uh, or su- surrender this thing to Jesus. The average person... Um, who's exposed to this kind of sexuality and media are consistently more likely to have intercourse before the age of 14. The average person today has sex for the first time at age 16. 57% of pastors say porn addiction is the most damaging issue to their congregations. The problem is one-third of evangelical pastors have a porn addiction. I am an evangelical pastor. As of today, I do not have a porn addiction. Have I ever looked at it? Yes. Have I ever been tempted by it? Absolutely. And I'm pretty much here to say I don't think there's a single man sitting in these seats and maybe some women who haven't struggled or hit hit that low in their life. And I'm just telling you, uh, we got to surrender that to Jesus. What do you think the number one day of the week for downloading pornography is? Sunday. The reason, no coincidence, right? We worship Jesus, the resurrected Christ, on Sunday, and then pornography is worshipped in the same vein, and so you've got this incredible tension going on in our culture. Our culture's been deceived by Satan on multiple fronts. Kids grow up with ungodly views of sex. They enter relationships, or sometimes a relationship isn't even necessary to have sex, like many adults. And the beauty, the romance, the sacredness, the intended guilt-free pleasure is all missing. And I know people feel guilty, and I know people feel shame. When you don't feel any guilt and you don't feel any shame, you're in trouble. We've got to feel that's part of what God uses to convict and move us so that we can honor him and so that he can give us his best. If we don't have guilt, if we don't have shame, we're in trouble. And people feel that they get away with something, but they're left with nothing. You know what I mean? Nothing but a a string of empty sexual encounters. When Paul was speaking to the Christians at Rome, he reminded them of great danger and the entrapments of idolatry, where people begin worshiping the things God made rather than God himself, and sex became the most worshiped small g God of the day, like it is in our day. God had the perfect plan, the way for his sons and daughters to experience the greatest joys, the most wonderful sexual pleasures and the most satisfying of relationships in the confines of how he set that up, but they chose to not engage. And here's what he wrote to them. Before I go there, I want any person in this room to know if you're struggling in any of the things that we've mentioned so far and you have just the smallest amount of courage to come and just share that, we will link you with somebody. We'll, help, we'll get some help. It'll be a, a trusted relationship. We will not leave you in your situation uh, of struggle. So here's what Paul wrote to the Romans, the Christians at Rome. For although they knew God, they neither, neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. And so God gave them over. It didn't take any coaxing either. They were ready. They were ready to engage with anything that moved. They partnered up with whoever would, up, would participate in the attempt at a shame-filled sexual gratification. I don't, it doesn't matter if it's heterosexual or homosexual, encounters alike. That, it didn't matter. They were just ready to surrender themselves in those relationships that dishonored God. Webster, from Webster's Dictionary said the most perfect maxims, morality of, um, and examples of regulating your social conduct and domestic economy as well as the best rules for morality and religion are to be found in the Bible. That's what Webster said. When Paul was addressing the oversexed Corinthians, he taught them in chapter 6, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of our God. And that's the salvation that Paul offers. And God is very clear. There's no ambiguity on the topics. He declares what is right and wrong. And please stay with me. This is where it gets kind of hard. But what pops out in that paragraph of Scripture? Is it the greedy? Is it the slanderers or the swindlers? All of these sins are included in the same topic. Is it the sexually immoral or the adulterers? No, it's the men who have sex with men that pops. You know why? Because that's the hot seat topic of our culture today. Does anybody know what the hot seat topic was back in the 70s? Living together. And now we're saying that ain't no big Everybody lives together. In fact, some people are saying adultery isn't even a big deal. Some circles say, go ahead. It's good to spice up your life a little bit and bring back some spice to your own marriage. And we're, some of us are, no, yeah, that, that happens. But the men who have sex with men stands out because it's become legislated morality in our day, but it's also included as part of God's standard, or it's not included as part of God's standard of morality. We just have to say it. And I, you know what? I wish I didn't have to stand up here and say it, but I, I have to say it. 
And I got to tell you my own story. I have a close friend that I knew before I went to Bible college for several years. And when we got to Bible college, uh, during our freshman year, he revealed that he had been living a homosexual lifestyle for a long, long time before he even got to college. And I'll just tell you up front that my other friends, we were all just one big group of friends, and, and we kind of shocked by, by what happened. But we weren't angry, and we weren't judgmental. I do remember that. You know why? Because we're friends. And you have a lot of friends in this room, multiple friends are represented, homosexual relationships and some family members. And I know people in my circle who are walking in that life and God declares it a certain way. Here's the deal. Don't, don't leave them there. And don't condemn them. And don't judge them. You don't have to do that. Come alongside and pray with them and work with them and walk with them, even if they say, but I don't see it as an issue, then don't shove your issues down their throat. That's not going to change everything. But to, to come alongside my friend, he was my friend. Do we understand that? I, I think you do. I'm passionate about it. He's still my friend. And after college, he decided that he was going to remain celibate because he knew that his life dishonored God, and that's his take. He will also tell you that none of this was forced upon him. It was a choice he made to live that lifestyle, and it was a choice he made to subscribe to the principles of God. It was his choice, and it wasn't easy. Now... He's married. Now, he never expected that to be part of the result or the gift that he was able to receive. And I don't know, it doesn't work that way in every situation, but I will tell you that he's also in ministry. He's a pastor. And he knows the truth, and so do we. And I asked him once, is it still difficult for you? He said, every day. Because when we subscribe to a certain aspect of sexuality and immorality, it gets deeply ingrained in us like some people who've been abused sexually by a parent or a relative or a friend, and they have this obsession with sexuality that's different, not because they brought it on themselves. It's just different. It's hard. And Paul says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. That's what his message to us is. And there's a lot of deception out there right now. And I know it goes so counter to our culture. I know it does. So how do we get on the path of honor? How do we get there? How do we 
reverse and, and back up? How do we recover um, no matter what the immorality issue is? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So step number one, run. Run. If you, if you say, that just sounds like the cowardly way, I don't care, run. F- flee. When Joseph uh, became uh, put in charge in, uh, well, actually, there was, he, he was a very handsome man, placed in charge of the household of an Egyptian official named Potiphar. We know the story? Potiphar had a wife who tried to seduce him. Day after day, she tried to get him to sleep with her. One day, she grabbed his coat and wouldn't let him go. Genesis 39, 12 says, but he left his coat in her hand and he ran. He ran so quickly, he left his coat in her hand. You know why? Because if he didn't run, he would have jumped in her bed. That's what happens. That's what happens. And so he ran Most of us should just run. If you hang around long enough, you're going to press the mouse where it says click here. Or if the joking tone of a teen says, my parents are home, isn't that convenient? Run. Or if the discussion with a coworker makes your heart beat faster with anticipation, you should run. There's not too many of us who don't know what that feels like. We do. Run. Your body is a temple that houses God's spirit, especially if you've chosen to follow Jesus. You are not your own. He purchased you. He ushers you into righteousness. So run and honor God with your body. The last point I want to make is something I refer to as sacred oneness that will help us get on the path of honor. Paul says something in verses just in front of those that we just read about running from immorality. It's the motivation to run. It's understanding what I'm referring to as sacred oneness. And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 6. Listen, this is, if you get nothing else, this is so sacred. This is so important to grasp. Just follow along. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. Sex that is on the path of honor says, I belong exclusively to you. I belong to my wife and she belongs to me. And no one else. You become one with them. And that oneness is reserved. It preserves a marriage commitment. And when it's used outside of that, it acts in reverse. Anybody experience? I'm sure you're not going to raise your hand, but people have experienced that. You end up more lonely than you were. You end up in search for intimacy and you don't find it. If life seems lonely without sex, it's far lonelier having sex that leaves you empty or used, I promise. 
And there's a lot of people who would attest to that. So what happens if you've abused it? Or what happens this morning if you say, I've seen sex work backwards in my life, now what do I do? If, if, if it's not an addiction problem, if it is an addiction problem, please connect with somebody like one of us and we'll get help because you've got to have help getting through it. If it's not something of that nature, but you're just weak and you, you just know you need to change that, then go to Jesus. He won't condemn you. He won't condemn you. Jesus won't condemn you. And if you know anything about the, the woman at the well that Jesus met who was married four times and the guy she was with at the time that Jesus met her wasn't her husband and she had many different kids and, and finally the long story short, Jesus does not condemn her. He offers her living water. And her whole life is changed. And then the final illustration I want to share with you is another woman. I'm sorry it's two women, but they're great illustrations. There was a woman who was caught in adultery, and a lot of us know that story too. And the Pharisees, the religious bigots, brought her to Jesus and they caught her in adultery and they threw her at the feet of Jesus and there she is in a heap and they're all carrying their rocks because they want to hit her and kill her with their rocks because she was caught in adultery. That's the law. And, and Jesus does something really strange. He bends down, he starts writing on the dirt where she is. And I love speculating. We've done it before. And maybe he's writing down some of their sin. Maybe he's writing down the names of some of the women they've been with. And all of a sudden, they start backing away, the oldest who have more experience, and then the youngest, and they back away, and they drop their rocks, and, and Jesus raises her up, and he says, where, where are your accusers? In essence, she says, they're gone. Where are your condemners? Where are the judges? They're gone. Well, neither do I condemn you, Jesus said. Then then what does he say? Yeah, you, oh, you know this. He said, go and sin no more. You know why that's such great advice today? Because that brings the freedom that when we sin no more, when we release the pieces that get us all tied up and stress us completely and take away the pleasure-filled relationship that God intended for us to have because we're sinning against him and, and our immoral behavior is driving a wedge between us and God, when he says to her, stand up, where are your accusers? I don't, I don't accuse you either, but go and sin no more. He forgave her sin, and that's what he does. Anything that you're trapped in or going through or living through right now, if you take it to Jesus, he pulls you to himself. He gives you the direction and then he tells you to go and sin no more. It's great advice. I'm going to ask you to stand with me this morning. We're going to pray. If you are in any of these positions we've talked about, again, I know it's hard, but we, we'd rather see rescue and see help. And can I also do one more thing because of the culture we live in and the time that we live in and the time of year that it is? If you're a student or a school administrator or a teacher, 
on any level, college, university, high school, grade school, would you raise your hand just for a moment? Anybody, just any role you play in our school systems. I want to tell you that we love you guys, and we, we pray for you. We honor you. You are on the front lines. You don't get paid enough to do what you do. Absolutely. All the teachers are saying it, right? But boy, I will tell you, you influence the lives of the students around you. I mean, we thank you. If you hold Jesus high and if you encourage and influence, then praise God for you and thank you. We want to encourage you in that. We're going to pray for you today. We're going to pray for each other as we close. Let's do that, okay? Father God, we thank you that your word is liberating and your word is freeing and that you offer um, hope and you offer salvation, you offer grace, you offer mercy, you offer forgiveness over and over and over again. Your word tells us there, are, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We thank you for that and we come to you claiming it and in need of it in many ways. And we pray today that even as we leave this place, uh, hopefully determined to honor you with our bodies and our minds. May you help us with your spirit. And Father, we pray also for all of those that we mentioned in our school systems, the teachers, administrators, leaders, students. We pray that your truth would be lifted high and made known and that we would do it with dignity and discernment and encouragement and, and that there would be no hatefulness or bigotry but just truth and love, and we just pray for them that you'll protect them and use them to honor and glorify you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Have a great Sunday. See you next week.